0: Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani State of Mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez Brothers, a Court TV mystery, available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Dead Blondes. Where are you going? Hollywood. Hollywood. Did you come here for excitement? I'm better than a human woman. Would you rather I be a brunette? My dress. Do you like it? I don't know. It's such a shock to see you dressed. I'm so alone, I' so. Alone. Oh, no. Today, we're going to go back in time a bit, in more ways than one. We're going to rewind in history to before the ascendancy of Marilyn Monroe, to talk about an actress who went looking for stardom around the same time as Marilyn, and whose blonde bombshell gifts should perhaps have made her equally eligible as the former Norma Jean to become the top blonde of the 1950s. But Barbara Payton never got the chance to prove herself as an actress, and though she lived five years longer than Marilyn Monroe, her quality of life had been on the decline, virtually ever since the highest point of her stardom almost two decades before. We've talked about Barbara Payton before. This episode revisits some material we discussed last summer in our Joan Crawford series. Crawford's second husband, Franco Tone, married Peyton when she was Hollywood's hottest up and coming starlet. In that episode, we focused on Peyton as the fulcrum of Tone's post Joan Crawford decline. Today, we're going to expand Barbara Peyton's story to talk about her life before French Oton, and to use her own words to help explain how she ended up first a destitute prostitute, and then dead at the age of 39. Join us, won't you, for the full story of Barbara Payton. In 1945, Barbara Payton was a 17-year-old newlywed. Her then-husband, John, an Air Force captain, was actually Barbara's second husband. She had eloped with a high school boyfriend 16 months earlier, a union which was rapidly annulled. Barbara seems to have seen John Payton as her ticket out of the Texas oil town where she lived with her parents, who were both heavy drinkers. When John asked her where she wanted to go on her honeymoon, she said, Hollywood. When the honeymoon was over, Barbara didn't want to leave, and John used the GI Bill to enroll at USC. Barbara soon finagled an audition for herself at RKO, which resulted in an invitation to attend classes at the Studio School for Starlets, with the promise of a real screen test sometime in the future. When it came time to rehearse for the test, Barbara fainted. She thought it was nerves. The studio doctor told her she was pregnant. Barbara says she considered suicide, but not abortion. It had ruined my career, but I knew I would have the baby, she wrote. Barbara would later make it sound as though she used the pregnancy as an excuse to dump her husband. But the couple lived together for over a year after the baby was born, and their divorce wouldn't be finalized until 1950, after Barbara was already becoming a star. In fact, by then, she was already perilously close to her peak leaving her 17-month-old son John Jr. with friends. In mid-1948, Barbara began to conquer Hollywood as a bachelorette. She started modeling and dancing in a nightclub review. By January 1949, she had landed a standard contract at Universal. Barbara would later describe a series of encounters with men during this period that helped her get ahead. She uses pseudonyms for all of the men, and it's hard to fact check any of the details that she provides. But the image she paints of herself is of a girl who was happy to go to bed with a man who could help her professionally, if she wanted to go to bed with him anyway. Over and over again, she states that she didn't believe in exchanging sex for movie work. That said, there were definitely men she wanted to have sex with, and there were men she expected to help her get work. And sometimes those were the same men. She mentions men who gave her jewels and furs after falling in love with her at first sight. She claims that one film financier helped her get parts all through 1949 simply because he enjoyed her company and that she only had to sleep with him once she pretty blatantly blind items Howard Hughes in an anecdote about trying a reverse psychology trick on a producer who asked her out. Rather than he give her mumbo-jumbo about getting her cast in a movie, she asked that he just treat her like a girl. Barbara claims this producer agreed, and that while they went on a few dates, he never tried to go to bed with her, and he didn't try to cast her in a movie and eventually, it was the latter that made her mad. She mentions a dalliance with a famous, married, philanthropist actor who died of a heart attack in bed with a woman, which sounds like it could be John Garfield, with a few details changed to confuse us into thinking it could be Errol Flynn. In any case, Barbara would claim that it was this actor, in the way he lived his life and his sudden death, who inspired her to do whatever she had to do, to follow what she believed was her fate. What Barbara doesn't mention is that she needed to go looking for work because she had been dropped from her contract at Universal. Her biographer, John O'Dowd, quotes sources who say that the morals clause was invoked against her due to her affair with Bob Hope, who was the top box office star in the world in 1949 and who had set up Barbara in her own apartment and paid all her bills, and who was also married. John O'Dowd sources also claim that when his mistress threatened to tattle to his wife, Hope paid Barbara off to stay quiet and stay away from him. Liberated from Universal, Barbara landed the first good part of her career— in a movie called Trapped. Trapped was what was called at the time a semi-documentary, meaning that it's introduced by an infomercial for the Treasury Department before a dramatization romanticizing the work of federal agents to catch criminals. Lloyd Bridges starred as a counterfeiter and Barbara played his girlfriend, who isn't a crook herself, but thanks to love, finds herself in the wrong place in the wrong time. Barbara had been cast for superficial reasons alone. The director, Richard Fleischer, had picked her headshot out of a stack and decided instantly that she had the look they were looking for. There is a striking publicity still from Trapped, shot in a photo studio, in which Bridges, tall and sturdy as a tree, grips Barbara's tiny left wrist, apparently painfully. As she struggles away from him, the strap of her dress slides off her right shoulder and her long, loose, gorgeous blonde curls are suspended in mid-air in a horizontal line pointing behind her. This doesn't look like the typical staged mid-century movie still. It looks like something might really be happening. It looks like he might be actually hurting her. There were a couple of images from the same photo shoot that were distributed to promote this movie. In another, Barbara looks as though she's about to fall to the ground. In both of these shots, her face is mostly turned away from the camera, making Bridges the protagonist of the image. In the first image, the expression on his face says, I don't care about you. In the second image, the expression on his face says, don't push me any further, or I will kill you. Thus, the first film in which Barbara Payden had a starring role was promoted glamorizing the idea of treating a beautiful woman as a punching bag or rag doll. That this is what the public wanted in 1950 is evidenced by the fact that the low-budget Trapped became a significant hit and Barbara got a big boost from her work in it. She was apparently seriously considered for the Marilyn Monroe role in The Asphalt Jungle, but as we've already discussed, Marilyn had the correct powerful man in her corner, which Barbara did not. And then Barbara heard, from what she claimed was a madam working out of Glendale, that James Cagney and his producer brother Bill were looking for a new actress. The casting call was on a sweltering hot day, and while every other girl in the casting office was primly trying to pretend they didn't sweat, Barbara came in and put on a show. Rather than wait her turn for her appointment, she barged into Bill Cagney's office, kicked off her shoes, brought her skirt up to fan her face, and exclaimed, It's a hot fucking day. This, she claimed, got her the part in Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye is a really weird movie. The Cagney's had formed their production company during World War II, right after Jimmy had won the Oscar for Yankee Doodle Dandy, with the idea that the actor would finally have the independence to branch out beyond the gangster roles and musicals that had made him a star in the 1930s. But a lot of those branch outs turned out to be major flops, and in 1949, Jimmy Cagney was forced to return to the criminal fold with White Heat, a throwback to his 1930s gangster films, which became a huge success. Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye was the Cagney brothers' attempt to repeat that success under the auspices of their new production company, and hopefully save said production company from a tailspin in the process but Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye feels like an even more incongruous throwback to the 1930s. From its earliest moments, in which Cagney and a prison buddy stage an escape from a chain gang, it feels like Cagney's character is way more evil than circumstances call for. Gangster movies were popular in the 1930s because, amidst the Great Depression, there was a real loss of faith in American institutions— When the system was so evidently rigged against the common man, it was easy for the common man to summon empathy for characters on screen who looked like him, who were driven to a life of crime as their only shot at living the good life, and who died a noble death in the end as a sop to the censors who insisted that crime could not pay. But American life was really different in 1950. Though there was enough of an underbelly to post-war culture to make film noir possible, noir's anti-heroes were rarely as thoroughly detestable and cartoonish as Cagney's Fugitive. We get no sense that he had been locked up for any sort of justifiable crime, nor that he was even being treated all that badly in lockup. All we see for 90% of the movie is him totally getting away with being a thug, a liar, and a thief with no moral code whatsoever. And he gets women. Barbara was cast as the sister of Cagney's escape partner, who was shot and killed while they were making a run for it. At first, Barbara wants nothing to do with Cagney. Her character is eminently reasonable in her argument that he is clearly a bad guy and she doesn't want to be his accomplice. But then he won't leave her apartment he settles into an easy chair and starts reading a newspaper. She gets so mad that she throws a kitchen knife at him, which barely nicks his ear. There are two gorgeous close-ups of Barbara realizing what she's done. Then Cagney starts whipping her with a towel. This breaks down her resolve pretty quick, and she falls into his arms, weeping. Cue makeout and what unfolds as probably the most blatantly sadomasochistic romance on screen of the era. Again, Barbara is playing a woman who not only exists to be treated badly by a bad guy, but who sexualizes and glamorizes being a battered woman. Barbara would later take credit for being the first actress to method act in a movie. As she put it, I just talked and stumbled around and wasn't formal. Just had fun but her performance doesn't feel particularly natural or honestly very good until the very end of the film Cagney's relationship with Peyton doesn't stop him from going after the richest girl in town too at the end of the movie Cagney returns to Barbara's apartment to get his things because he's going to leave her for the rich girl but Barbara has figured out that he's a louse Not just that he's been two timing her, but that it was him who shot her brother, and not, as he claimed, the prison guards. Ten minutes before the end of the movie, with a revolver in her hand pointed at one of the biggest stars of the previous generation, Barbara Payton gets the star making moment she'd been waiting for. You only said one true thing in your life, and that's when you said you were going away tonight. And you are. Three miles out of town and six feet down. All alone. With nobody to lie to. And you can kiss tomorrow goodbye. But no, Hollywood, you, you shouldn't have killed my brother. In the 1930s, gangsters were martyred at the end of a movie. In Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, it's inconceivable anyone could be sorry to see Jimmy Cagney's demise. The only possible reaction to this scene is to cheer Barbara Payton as not only the hero of this movie, but a feminist heroine for the ages, who conquers her own fears, insecurities, and abuse psychosis to vanquish a male monster, thus revealing what a joke he was all along. Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye was a hit, But it didn't exactly touch off a wave of films that ended with a woman's revenge. Nor did it result in a string of strong roles for Barbara Payton. As we saw with Jane Mansfield, you can kill off the icons of the recent past, but that doesn't necessarily transform you into the icon of the future. It just makes you a killer. If you take Barbara Payton's word for it, By 1950, she was living the highest of high lives. She was the most in-demand woman in Hollywood, in more ways than one. That's maybe what it felt like to her, or maybe that's how she remembered it a decade later when it was all long in the rear view. But the facts tell a slightly different story. After not doing much work of notice for a few years, Barbara had starred in two hit film noirs, she was under personal contract to Cagney Productions, which technically meant she was the property of Warner Brothers, but this was something different than being the sheltered pet of a major studio. The fact that she was still considered up-and-coming and had not yet ascended to the top echelon is evidenced by an honor she received in December 1950. Between 1922 and 1934, an association of publicists united under the acronym WAMPAS had poured over the slates of new studio contract stars to pick a dozen or so lovely ladies to be dubbed that year's baby stars, who were, quote-unquote, most likely to succeed in Hollywood. These lists always combined women with real talent who'd go on to enjoy real careers, such as Clara Bow, Joan Blundell, and Ginger Rogers, with young ladies who were the momentary favorite of some producer, and whose careers, such as they were, would be all but over by the time the following year's list was revealed. After letting the tradition go dormant for over 15 years, in 1950 the publicists issued a condensed list of seven new baby stars. This slate included Piper Laurie, Debbie Reynolds, and Barbara Payton. Barbara was the only blonde on the list, a fact that was pointed out in articles as though it was an achievement. Given the fact that Betty Grable was that year's most bankable female box office star, it was definitely a good time to be a young, up-and-coming blonde. Barbara's increased stature was clear when Warner Brothers very publicly announced that they had raised her salary to $10,000 a week. Meanwhile, the Hollywood Reporter made note of her visibility on the nightlife scene, dubbing her the blazing blonde bombshell and queen of the clubs. And then... Into her life walked Joan Crawford's ex-husband, Francho Tone. In the summer of 1950, Tone was invited to judge a Charleston dance contest at a club on the Sunset Strip. He helped select as winner a gorgeous, blonde, up-and-coming starlet under contract to Warner Brothers named Barbara Payton. Barbara had recently been named the most beautiful girl in movies by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, and she had just filmed her biggest part to date, opposite James Cagney in the film, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. Though still on the rise in Hollywood, Hayden was already a fairly notorious party girl, one who was known to love to drink and to enjoy her effect on men, and who had murky connections to unsavory characters. She had been married once and had a young son who mostly didn't live with her. The highly civilized tone seems to have become obsessed by Peyton's wild spirit. Joan and Franchot had by this time settled into a comfortable friendship, and Joan had heard enough stories about Barbara that she warned her ex-husband that she was a chippy and a tart and to stay away from her. Joan Crawford did not exactly have a belief in sisterly charity between actresses, particularly from an older generation to the younger. After all, no one had helped her. Knowing this was probably not the only reason why Tone didn't heed Joan's warnings. The fact is, Franchot Tone was both attracted and repulsed by Barbara Payton's coarseness. He loved her independence and unpredictability... And he wanted to groom her and change her. He bought her ladylike new clothes and jewelry, which she sometimes wore, accompanied by temporary face tattoos, which for a short time became her charmingly gaudy personal signature. This was how Barbara was turned out at a party friend show through at the Stork Club in New York in October 1950 to announce their engagement. But their relationship was not exactly based on a foundation of trust. Barbara seems to have never had any intention of remaining faithful to her fiancé. Long before they could marry, with the aid of detectives, Frencho caught Barbara in bed with at least one of her male co-stars. But the real trouble was yet to come. While Barbara was filming the cheapy thriller Bride of the Gorilla a loan-out assignment that was basically punishment for refusing too many Warner Brothers scripts and generating too much scandalous gossip, Franco went to New York to work. And in his absence, Barbara met and became involved with a beefcake actor named Tom Neal. In what seems like either an extraordinary coincidence or just evidence that mid-century Hollywood was impossibly incestuous— Barbara Payden's biographer claims Tom Neal had had an affair with Joan Crawford in the late 1930s while Neal was a contract player at MGM and when Crawford was either separated from but still married to Tone, or just barely divorced from him. This biographer says Joan figured out that she wasn't the only person Neal was sleeping with and that he was, in fact, also having an affair with an MGM executive's wife and that Joan, miffed that she didn't have the boy to herself, told on Neal to Louis B. Mayer, which led to a confrontation between the mogul and the actor, which led to Neal being dropped from his MGM contract. The dots don't all quite connect in this story to suggest that anything more sinister or conspiratorial was going on, other than that Crawford and Payden had the same taste in men, and that the same men were floating around looking for women like Crawford and Payton in the 1930s and in the 1950s, which is to say incredibly beautiful women who enjoyed active sex lives. But based on what happened in the late 1930s, it seems unlikely that Tom Neal didn't know who Franco Tone was when he met Barbara Payton in 1950. And if so... That would mean that Tom Neal knew perfectly well whose life he was about to light a garbage fire in the middle of. On July 31st, 1951, Barbara announced to reporters that she was no longer going to marry French O'Tone, and in fact, she had proposed marriage to Tom Neal four minutes after they had met. As Tom put it to Newsweek, quote, Barbara asked me to marry her. She was engaged to Tone when I met her, but she told me she wanted me because he was too dull. She said I was exciting. This was apparently all news to Franchot, who returned from New York a month later and started trying to get his fiance back. In mid-September, the day before she and Tom were scheduled to marry, Barbara agreed to meet Franchot secretly at the Beverly Hills Hotel. A few hours later, Barbara called her maid and asked her to pack a bag and bring it to the hotel. Barbara and Franchot spent the evening making the rounds of the Sunset Strip nightclubs. And after 1 a.m., they returned to Barbara's apartment, where they found Tom partying with a group of friends. Barbara's ex-fiancé and the man she was scheduled to marry the next morning started exchanging words. Barbara kissed Franchot and asked him to get rid of Tom. This may have been a test. She knew Franchot could financially support her and give her entree into a higher echelon of the acting world, but could he physically defend her? The answer turned out to be no. Tom punched Franchot so hard in the face that he went flying through the air and landed several feet away. He was knocked unconscious for a moment and he awoke to find Tom kneeling on his chest, pummeling him relentlessly. It's unclear if Tone got any punches in at all. At one point, Barbara tried to intervene, and Tom accidentally elbowed her in the face, giving her a black eye. The beating went on for ten minutes, until another male party guest finally succeeded in pulling Tom off of Tone. Franchot had a broken nose broken cheekbone and jaw, and a concussion. He was unconscious for over 18 hours. Doctors worried that the concussion may have caused a blood clot, which could lead to a stroke or death. An LAPD homicide detective told reporters that if Tone died, they would charge Tom for murder. When the immediate mortal danger passed, reporters turned to the longer-term impact on Tone's career. As plastic surgeons got to work repairing his smashed-in face, one was quoted as saying, In a general way, it's reasonably certain he'll look like Franco Tone, but as for close-ups, who knows? Barbara stood by Tone. At first, she visited him in the hospital, bringing her mummy-wrapped paramour martinis in the thermos. But before Franchot was even released from the hospital, Barbara and Tom were photographed together at a nightclub. Eventually, Tone dropped the charges against Tom, and Franchot and Barbara eloped the next day, exactly two weeks after Barbara and Tom were supposed to have married. A month or so later, Franchot spent a night in jail after spitting on and strangling the neck of gossip columnist Flora Bell Muir in a nightclub. After 53 days of marriage, Franchot filed for divorce. And then they got back together. But Barbara was still flagrantly seeing Tom. At a press event held for some reason at a strip club, Barbara said nice things about Franchot into a microphone while Tom looked on. Four months later, in a hotel room with Franchot, Barbara attempted suicide via sleeping pills. A few days later... Franchot left her for good. In the highly moralistic media climate of the 1950s, the beating and the love triangle it exposed got outsized attention. It became something the whole nation, already in the grips of the Red Scare, could point to as evidence of the rot and depravity of Hollywood. In The Fallout, Barbara was dropped from the cast of a prestigious film and then cut from the Warner Brothers roster altogether. No other studio dared to take a chance on her. In front of the courthouse, after her divorce hearing, Barbara told reporters, When I married, Tone, I thought it would last forever. But forever is just a weekend, more or less. Hayden's notoriety lasted just a little while longer. She got back together with Tom Neal, and together they went to London, where Barbara appeared in a couple of movies for Hammer Films, and then she and Tom returned to Hollywood and starred together in a cheap Jesse James movie, and then a traveling stage production of The Postman Always Rings Twice. In the middle of a show in Chicago, she fainted on stage after apparently drinking vodka for hours before the show. Soon thereafter... Barbara and Tom broke up. By now, it was only 1953, but Barbara's looks had already been diminished by alcohol. Her final film, Edgar G. Ulmer's Murder Is My Beat, was released in 1955. That year, she was arrested for bouncing checks at her local supermarket. She was ordered to pay a $100 fine, but she didn't have the money. She had to borrow it from the owner of one of the nightclubs she frequented. She moved into a roach-infested apartment next door to Mela Nurmi, who was then on TV as Vampyra. She started selling stories about her affairs with men like Bob Hope to magazines like Confidential. She helped a fourth husband start a business in his native Mexico. And when that relationship ended, Barbara moved into a flophouse apartment on Sunset Boulevard in Fairfax and made her rent by turning tricks. First with execs and actors, friends and guys who had been hanging around long enough to know who she was, in a haze of booze and eventually heroin, her price dropped from three hundred to one hundred to fifty dollars. We know this because in 1962 she detailed it all in her ghost-ridden autobiography, titled. I am not ashamed. Peyton wrote I am not ashamed while living in what she described as a rat and roach infested apartment. I drink too much rosé wine, she admitted on the second page. I don't like what my scale tells me. The little money I do accumulate to pay the rent comes from old residuals. Poetry, and favors to men. I love the Negro race, and I will accept money only from Negroes. Barbara then proceeds to, quote, fill you in on the roller coaster ride from Happy Town rich to Happy Town poor. She acknowledges that she, quote, always has a little bit too much wine in me, but you can bet your tootsies that every word is true. I'm too old to bullshit the public. She was 35. In the most moving section of the book, she talks about the vicious cycle that begins to a star, or at least began to her, the second they become aware that their career is slipping just a little. At first, when you start going in the wrong direction, you hardly notice it, Barbara would write. There are a few less autograph hounds outside the theater. The studio boss rushes past you on the lot, but you're sure he didn't see you. The market manager politely reminds you that your account is running a little high. You don't get quite the A treatment at the beauty parlor. Your agent sends you just a few less scripts to choose pictures from. And most important, you look in the mirror and you don't look quite as good. You don't know why, but that's the way it is. And then, she explained, you drink a little bit more. You get on that sorry for yourself kick. If you're like me, you need more affection and sex because you have to prove there's still one area of living you can score in. But then, she added, even that starts to become more difficult. Beauty, she wrote, is like the ad for a product. People like the ads, so they flock to buy. You start losing your looks, which is the natural process of growing older, and they stop buying. But the product is still the same. I was more mature, more intelligent, and had a better sense of humor. See, I was more valuable, but the advertising wasn't as good. So time hurts the ad, helps the product. She estimated that she had burned through a million dollars during the height of her fame, but said most of it went to needy friends. Once, she claimed, she bought a cinematographer a house as a thank you for making her look so good on screen. But then, when she needed help, no one stepped up to the task. She herself didn't even realize what was happening until it was too late. For Barbara Payton, it was a slippery slope to prostitution. And it started happening while she was still famous enough to be recognized on the street, although no longer considered valuable enough to any studio for them to get her any real work. She would find herself going to bed a few times with a guy she genuinely liked, and then one morning, she would find he'd left her an envelope of money. Your first instinct will be to give it back, she wrote. But you realize that your bills are enormous, and you must pay them. So you rationalize, and tell yourself it's a loan. Just a small loan until you get your next big break. But the next break never comes, and you never pay back the loan. Then, slowly, she would come to expect it. She tells the story of one guy who started slipping envelopes of cash into her purse one day after they had returned from a trip to Vegas. She looked in her purse, and there was no envelope. Assuming it had fallen out, she called the guy and apologized and said, I think I lost the money you gave me. You didn't lose any money, baby, he said. I didn't give you any. I wanted to find out if I was making love to a girlfriend or a whore. Well, I guess I found out. Angry and humiliated, Barbara took her leave from Hollywood. She went to Mexico and married a fisherman. She thought she'd never return to Hollywood. I had peace and happiness, she later recalled. But it wasn't enough. Reading this line in Barbara Payden's autobiography, I thought about that line from the Time magazine obituary of Carol Landis, about how her voracious appetite for happiness... Led her down the road of ruin. These women became symbols of too much, of burning too bright and burning out too quickly. Time magazine blamed Carol for wanting too much. Barbara Payden blamed herself. But their individual talents aside, neither Carol Landis nor Barbara Payden was an original. They were both part of the trajectory that we've been talking about for two months. Both came to Hollywood wanting to be part of a kind of dream life, which they had been led to believe was accessible to girls who looked like them. And to some extent, it was. Hollywood had created in the public an appetite for beautiful blondes, and like addicts, the culture began demanding exponentially more, and each new blonde was given less time to grab a foothold. And once your window of opportunity was over, no one was going to help you wedge another window open. Everyone had already moved on to another blonde. Barbara lived in Mexico intermittently for about four years. In 1957, she briefly ran a restaurant in Riverside, California, then spent some time in Chicago working as an escort. At some point, she returned to Hollywood, hoping to rekindle her career. She had lost weight and felt ready to work. But it was now 1958, and the only job she could get was teaching at an acting school. I showed them how to walk and talk and sit, but when I tried to tell them of the pitfalls, they didn't listen. I still tried to talk to young girls clawing their way to stardom, but they're sure that what happened to me can't possibly happen to them. Ha! That job ended after one of the male students tried to date rape her, then told the man who ran the school his side of the story, which got Barbara fired. By 1961, she was homeless. In early 1962, she was arrested for soliciting an undercover cop. Five months later, she walked into a police station and tried to file a report, accusing a gang of teenagers of trying to rape her. She was drunk, and the police didn't believe her. The next morning, having slept the night on a bus bench, she was arrested for public intoxication. By the time Barbara had landed a deal to write her autobiography for $2,000, she was being kept in an apartment on Sunset Boulevard by a pimp who kept all the money she earned and sometimes even encouraged her to give freebies. Barbara told the ghostwriter of her book, Leo Guild, that she didn't mind because her pimp made sure she always had wine. At some point during this period, she became hooked on heroin. In 1967, she was found sleeping in a parking lot beside a dumpster, and was hospitalized for chronic alcoholism and malnutrition. When she was released from the hospital, a social worker drove her to her parents' house in San Diego. This was not the ideal place for Barbara to recuperate, as her parents were by now, like their daughter, full-time alcoholics. Her father tried to ban liquor from the house when Barbara moved in, Barbara then crashed his car En route to the liquor store Her mother was in the passenger seat At the time After that Barbara managed to quit drinking In constant abdominal pain She rode out withdrawal In bed Or sitting in the family living room In a daze Watching cartoons But it was already too late Within two weeks She was dead her heart and liver, had both just had it. Barbara summed up the peak of her stardom, and what went wrong, pretty well. Constantly, as I was with Francho Tone and Tom Neal, she wrote, I was torn between what was supposed to be good for me and what I wanted. They never seemed to be the same thing. Thus concludes our time talking about the tragedies of the mid-century bombshells. At least for now. Next week, we'll shift gears to talk about a totally different kind of blonde star. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant was Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. And our editor is Sam Dingman. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, You must remember youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There, you'll find the original Barbara Payton episode, which this episode excerpts from. It's in our series, Six Degrees of Joan Crawford, which first premiered last summer. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod and find us on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.